0: Lost Talk Radio. Hi folks and welcome to another edition of on, uh, Stackhouse Radio On Ear Scare. Uh, today we are um, honored to have um, Mr. Jeff Mudgett with us on the show today uh, to talk about his book Bloodstains, uh, a book he wrote about the notorious uh, serial killer H.H. H. Holmes. Uh, but before we get into that, and before we introduce Mr. Mudgett, we'd like to just give you a couple of announcements here. Um, Quentin, did you have anything you want to uh, talk about before we start the show off? Um,
1: no, nothing in particular.
0: <clears throat> okay. Just to let you guys know, uh, if you are live with us this evening, thank you for joining us. If you are on our Blog Talk Radio page, either live or as an archive listener, please. Um, all the links to our Facebook page are there, also our website. So please feel free to you know check out our Facebook page, pop onto it, give us a like. And also, if any of the listeners ever has an idea for a story or a topic or anything you want to talk about, uh, please drop us uh, an email there. We love hearing from you guys. So, um, you know, we read all the emails. Uh, we love hearing from you. Your ideas, your opinions. How are we doing, and so forth and so on. Also, um, for all my Mississippi listeners, just to let you know, uh, one of my um, one of my charities uh, that I try to push out there as much as I can. uh, You know, I'm really big into animal rescue. I'm one of our local rescues here, uh, Wild at Heart Animal Rescue. Wonderful organization has lost its mascot, if you will, Bob the Possum. Uh, Bob was really active, um, you know, a really important part of all the presentations going into school. Um, he was hands-on for a lot of the kids and everybody else, and he was just a wonderful little guy, and there's going to be a memorial for him this Saturday here in Mississippi on the coast, and if you go to the Facebook page, I'm going to post up that as well. Also, check out their page. It's Wild at Heart Animal Rescue right here on the coast of Mississippi, um, Everything they do is out of pocket. They they rescue wildlife of any kind, any sort, and they're always looking for help. So, you now we'll put those links up on the uh, on the Facebook page for you guys to check out. But uh, without further ado, we'd like to go into our show. Um, like I said today, we are very fortunate enough to have uh, Mr. Jeff Mudgett. Hello, Jeff. How are you tonight?
2: Uh, thank you very much. I've uh, been looking forward to uh, being on your show for quite a while, and. Um hope to give uh, your listeners some uh, new information about uh, what I consider one of the most incredible uh, pieces of American history that's gone largely uh, invisible for the last uh, 50 60 years.
0: Yeah, well, it's our pleasure to have you on. We're really happy you're here with us tonight.
2: Well, and uh, I tell you what, um, any chance I get to uh, open the story up to uh, maybe someone who hasn't had the chance to uh, read the book or do some research into H.H. H. Holmes and the most prolific serial killer that ever lived. Uh, I welcome the opportunity, so thank you very much. No, it's our pleasure.
0: So writing this book, um, obviously, you know, you found out that, um, you know, just one day finding out, you know, that your your great-grandfather is, America's most notorious serial killer. I mean, that moment of realization, that must have been profound. and obviously was life-changing for you. Um, can you describe, just for the listeners, I mean, what ha- how it happened and, and what it did to you as a person, how that woke you up or, or made you aware of certain things or changed you?
2: Well, yeah, sure. I tried to explain it in the book. It's... Um It all came to a head at a family dinner um, with my uh, grandparents, um, my grandfather, Bert, who I write about extensively in the book. Um, I knew the mudgets were different. I knew we were uh, eccentric. Um, We were uh, law-abiding, God-fearing people um, who pretty much set aside half our history um, based on stories from from members of the family about uh, it had been a horse thief in Arkansas who had been hanged, um, it had been a uh, um, uh, life insurance fraud uh, in New England, things like that. So we pretty much um, let it let it ride. Well, my grandmother became fascinated with genealogy in her later years and hired um, one of the most famous companies. That was before Ancestry. dot com, of course. And um, on uh, this. Uh, She was on a quest. She thought we were related to General Robert E. Lee, the Civil War general, and um, paid them serious money to run this down. Well, um, the story goes, as she told me later, they came to her one day and said, you know that old saying about letting sleeping dogs lie, this is a perfect time for that because it's not General Robert E. Lee, and we'd rather just stop here. So, um, she pretty much let it go. Um, we were at this this family dinner. Um, my brother, who is a, uh, a research historian as well, started bringing up um, the uh, the issues that this genealogy company had uh, had raised. Um, you could see my grandfather at the head of the table getting stoic, getting red, getting ready to burst and I try uh-huh. to explain in the, in the uh, book how when that name, my brother brought up the name H.H. H. Holmes, who was Herman Webster Mudgett, of course, he liked H.H. H. Holmes better. My grandfather exploded at the table, chair thrust back into the wall, the picture came down off the wall, and he pointed to all of us at the table, stopping with me, saying that that name will never be mentioned in this house again, and then he stormed out of the room. Well, we came to find out that he had kept this a secret from the entire family, his his entire life, including my grandmother, who wouldn't have married my grandfather had she known that he was the grandson of H. H. Holmes. Wow. And uh, that that knowledge that I gained that night, um, through my career up in the air, I was a practicing lawyer in California, mm-hmm. it became an obsession, and I went off um, all around the country, and London too, trying to find out the truth about what was mostly legend and error so that's uh, the last 10 years of my life that's what it's been
0: wow that's amazing now i i i don't want to give you know the entire book away um for those out there who have not read it yet and please if you haven't read it you know it's definitely uh it's an amazing read it's uh I, I've actually been reading it at night, you know, just before I go to sleep, which is probably not the wisest thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you I've had the strangest dreams in the world. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it really is a blood-curdling book. It's it's so chilling. Now, now, you go into the book, and like I said, I don't want to give the book away on air because I think people, you know, they really really should go out and read this book. But without giving too much away, Um you go into, I mean, almost into the mind of H.H. H. Holmes, and, you know, obviously when you do something like this, I, it becomes obsession. That was really obvious in the book there um, that it was an obsession for you, which, um, you know, I can't understand how it would be. You know, there's one small section of the book, and if I, and if I can bring this up, um, it's not the end part, but there's one in the, towards the beginning that I caught and I just wanted to ask you about, now you said during your research into the, your ancestor, your, your, you had sent your wife to stay with her mother? Is that correct?
2: Um, no, but we, or, we, uh, we had problems. We had issues. She, she knew that this was... My, I was married to one of the most incredible uh, women in the world who realized how my life was now dependent on finding out the truth about... Mm-hmm. It, all of a sudden, um, Deanna, I, I was faced with knowing that my genes, my DNA, the reason right. I was here, stand, the reason I'm here talking to you today are conscious decisions of the most pure evil that ever lived. And that's, right. hey, you, can, you can brush that off, you can blow that off. It's not so easy when it's you, let me tell you. And my wife, my wife knew that. She knew mm-hmm. I had to have some... Uh, some space and time, and she uh, stepped aside and let me uh, pretty much go, go uh, run in history. So know the everything, everything about her—that's uh, mm-hmm. one of my fondest memories—and how she handled this whole thing. And, and you know what? You don't have to apologize about talking about the story. My my book is not a mystery. It's not something that we have to worry about discussing portions of it. It's a book right. that a reader—it's a book that a reader experiences. Mm-hmm. You step into my shoes and you feel it. And it's not. You could know what the conclusion is, and it's not going to change the read for you. So um,
0: right. um, go okay. ahead and ask
2: whatever questions you have Okay.
0: Like. Yeah, and, and that's just, you know, when you're reading the book, it, it is so personal. And you almost, from the reader's point of view, it almost seems like you're being a voyeur. Like, you know, I shouldn't be reading this, or I, I shouldn't be looking, you know. But you can't help it. And, I mean, you write it. It's such a personal, I mean, it's so, it, it, it sucks you in. So... I guess reading it, I kind of felt almost as if I was intruding. That's how personal it became. And that's how you you put it out, that you really bear everything. And um, I, I guess it was just from what I got. And like I said, it could just be my interpretation. Is you were um, obviously finding out that this DNA is in you. And knowing what we know today about genetics and hereditary her, hereditary you know, issues and everything else. Once you had this knowledge, I mean, did you have a genuine fear that this could play into your, um, I'm trying to word this without sounding horrible, but did you feel that this could actually have a negative impact, like play out these things or maybe harm people around you, you know, all I mean, I know something like this changes people, and it can really it can switch things on in our brains that we didn't know were there. So did you have that fear? Did you have that fear that you could possibly hurt someone
2: very close to that you loved
0: because of you know, what you're involved in now?
2: Oh, absolutely. Everything that you had assumed was good and everything that you believed was evil was now changed. Any, mm-hmm. any thought, any logic, any thought pattern you had had to be considered in light of who you were from. Um, it changes your whole life. Imagine, Diana, imagine you finding out you're the great-granddaughter of Adolf Hitler. Now wow. you tell me that wouldn't have changed your life and how you thought about the people around you. And how you needed you knew you needed to be careful about things that you used to take for granted, like driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you're and you're mm-hmm. mad and you, you you cuss them out driving the car and all of a sudden you can't do that anymore. All of a sudden right. you start worrying you start worrying if you're going to cross a line or an edge yeah, I And imagine. now you know exists.
0: I mean when so you put ahead. it that way and yeah, it's
1: it's
0: I I don't know what I would do.
1: Well, so uh, I have a, a question. Sorry. Oh, uh, my question just was on, on the topic that we're on at the moment. So I mean, anytime you have like a, and I'm not going to talk like, I don't mean like every time you drop a fork, but I mean anytime, because I'm one of those people, someone cuts me off or someone does something, that I, I'm usually on that borderline of exploding. So, to me, I'm not obviously thinking, oh, God, can I explode and go too far? You know, I just calm myself down. But with you, anytime something like that happens, does that instantly rush to your mind that this could be the thing that triggers you to just go off?
2: It does. And um, Diana will be able to back me up on this because the book discusses how during this obsession I developed epilepsy where I'd have seizures Mm
1: -hmm.
2: where this voice... um, would actually talk to me about how I should cross those lines and edges that I'd never done in my life before. You know, I found this out when I was 40. Then about forty two, forty three, I started having epileptic seizures where this thing, this monster, started talking to me about when I was with my friends or when I was with somebody that irritated me, and it took me a long time um, and I write about the doctors going to neurologists, going to uh, do, doing the scans, them trying to find if I had a tumor, um, them explaining how, oh, everybody with epileptic seizures has a voice of a serial killer talking to them. And I knew that oh wasn't my true. God. I knew that wasn't true, especially when this voice was giving me facts, historical facts that no one else knew before. So I, try, I give my readers the choice. They can either say this is just a guy that had a head problem with a neurologist explaining to him exactly what was happening. Or you can be the hundred million other people in our world, in our country, that believe in the paranormal, that believe mm-hmm. in the supernatural, Little to understand that. You know, when I, when I go on the shows now, I, try to, uh, I get asked, you believe in God, you believe in devil. Um, those things. What I what I tend to believe in now, having written this book and gone through my experience with with this thing, is that when we die, there's an energy that remains on Earth. It doesn't just disappear or or dissipate. It's uh, it's like water. When water evaporates, it goes up into the atmosphere, it comes back down as rain. It's it's again the ocean and the lake. That same energy, that life energy. Um, when when we die or when a monster like this dies, still exists to me. That's what I believe. I can't prove it, obviously. I think in 20 or 30 years, we will be able to prove that energy, which is what Einstein believed. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, that's uh, what I tried to explain in the book. How I would go down into the basement of the murder castle, which is now a post office, of course. And I would and I would feel that energy, this thing would start talking to me, and he would try to get me to kill my best friend standing five feet from me. So, uh, Quentin, I hope that answers your question, but that's... Y- your whole life has changed with this knowledge, because you're reluctant to step over that imaginary line that all of a sudden now you know exists.
0: And it's interesting that you, you talk about, um, you know, in the book how... You did mention that it triggered uh, epileptic seizures, and I know people who have epilepsy, and honestly, not one of them has ever mentioned hearing you know voices or people directing it. I mean certainly not the way that you had experienced in the book. Um, it was almost as if it was a completely different person that existed beyond you and it really came it, it came it came to like that that's how I read it. I read it that it was an entity actually speaking through you.
2: Um, and There's, I, that's, that's what I think was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a logical man that went to uh, many years of uh, graduate school. I understand medical science and, and mm-hmm. how the brain works, so I'm always back and forth with a logical explanation of the voice and the visions that I saw in that basement, Um, him trying to push me to do things I would have never done without him there. And then of course that that other side that that we all, it's kind of like uh, you you have a 25 to 40 year old uh, young lady, a graduate student, intelligent, who wants to figure out why strange things happen in the world. And then as you get older a little bit older and get closer to that thing we call death, I, I find, uh, you know, my friends, as, as we age a little bit and, and uh, uh, we don't try to explain it as much anymore and we're willing to accept And Quite frankly, um, Dan, I know
1: mm-hmm.
2: when I reread my own book,
1: right. um, it's
2: easier for me. Just that energy is there and hopefully one day it will be proven. I
0: mean, I, I, I agree with you on that one, Dan, and I do think eventually... It will be. Um, I just think. Wait, that you know, I just
1: read a. I just read an article, probably, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say a week ago, um, and it was people. It was like a acclaimed neuro, like a neuropsychologist. I don't know. Someone who does brain stuff. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was it. Might have been that. Um, and or was it a brain? Uh, maybe a neurosurgeon, something like that. But anyway. He, he had been 25 years in the field, you know, very acclaimed, blah, 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 skipping through all that. Um, and he basically talked about tubules in the brain that contain consciousness and that when essentially like people who have near-death experiences, it's what happens is the energy leaves those tubules. They said, and when, if you come back, energy gets put back into those tubules, which I guess they've been capable of proving now, that, you know, they cease to function and refunction. And they said that's kind of what we believe to be the containment of consciousness are these particular tubules. And they said, so if when you suddenly die, the energy isn't destroyed, it's released. And when people come back from near death experiences, the energy is reabsorbed quickly. So they said it kind of proves that the energy can leave it and then come back into it.
2: a lot of sense to me and that's pretty much, I'm not smart enough to be able to explain it as well as you did or that scientist did in the article, but that's, that's having experienced the power and the energy that I've seen you know, uh, chasing the, the facts down of this legend. Um, that's that's what I believe, and I think, like I like we were discussing earlier, it will be proven in the next 20, 30 years when the electronic equipment that they have detecting energy levels and things in the brain. You know, the the uh, the breakthroughs they're having in the brain now, and what and what how it works, and what it is is just remarkable. If you stay with that, so um, it's coming, it's coming.
1: It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Well, I would definitely say that you know, being, I, I do a lot of genealogy work myself, and, I mean, I don't descend from a serial killer, but I do have some not-so-distant ancestors who've committed a murder or two, and there are some that committed a lot of incest, and, you know, it, it, I, I totally understand what you say it kind of plays on your mind. I mean, I don't know to the extent that you probably have had it, because mine's not nearly as gruesome, um, but the whole thing about the the whole mental conversation going on with them or the voice coming through. I totally understand what you're talking about. Um, I think I know, I I, I think I've had a similar experience to that. And going back to that our energy leaves us but isn't just gone, like it it comes back, like you said, like the uh, water evaporating and raining. They say that energies are attracted to like energies, and if your body should die and you then have grandchildren that are born afterwards, they're made up of the same DNA as you, so you would be of a a similar polarity or something like that. So you wonder if the energy from ancestors that is released out there can be attracted to you because it's similar to the frequency that the body it left from is vibrating at or whatever.
2: Could very well be. I, I am of the mind that when, you know, these energies found out that I was obsessed with finding out the truth and going to every, every place the legends, you know, had, uh, had written erroneously about mostly, um, I, think, I think like you say, that energy is attracted to your obsession, that energy you develop needing to know. And um, that may be um we're way way over my head as far as discussing uh brains and uh, the the attraction of Einsteinian energies. But I, I'm I, you know what uh, Quentin, I'm right there with you. I think that's uh, I think that's what will be determined one year, maybe maybe long after I'm gone, but uh one year that will be determined how, how life and energy works. Now,
0: really quickly just to you know, uh get into the book here, um you know, about, you know, you were just talking about like different, you know, erroneous accounts of what you know. Some people talk about regarding H. H. Holmes. Now, there is one section of your book that I have to say morbidly. I was actually rooting H. H. Holmes on in, um, and yeah, I was actually rooting for him. Like, yeah, yeah, because uh, there was there was the bullfight, the bullfight scene, um, where he sees what's doing what's happening to the bull, and he kind of puts the bullfighter in that same scenario um, of, you know, giving him the chance to fight and giving him the same courtesy that they gave the bull earlier. And, and I will say that that was the one part of the book where I actually found myself cheering H.H. Holden on, if that doesn't sound too morbid, um, I think, you know, obviously I think bullfighting is horrible, but that's just me. But in the different parts, like,
2: I'm sorry. That's that's one of my favorite uh, parts of the book when when he turns the tables on a very uh-huh. famous um, bullfighter. Um, it's uh, many people um, are fascinated with that chapter. Um, mm-hmm. I think they think they feel just like you do. They feel sympathetic for the animals so they tend to root for Holmes when you really have to dig just a little deeper and know that Holmes is not doing anything for the animal. It has to do with discovering discovering this falsity that this matador portrays in front of this Mm -hmm. huge crowd because he's making a living so he he, he treats his poor animal like like hell Mm -hmm. and then expects to be created a hero from it with a fortune, and Holmes hated things like that. He just yeah. hated things like that. He loved the study of human nature. It's like the next chapter when he takes the detective and his daughter down into the uh, yes murder castle basement. That, that to me, is the scariest of the book um, and delves
1: deep mm-hmm. into
2: that human nature that that father and daughter have, knowing one, right. at least one of them is going to die a horrible death. Right.
0: Oh, God, yeah, I mean, and, and trying, how he tries to pin the daughter and the father against you, or the daughter against the father. And I thought that was brilliant, you know, delving deep. I mean, he was intelligent. You know, I think what people don't realize is that when they hear about serial killers, they think we just you know serial slashers and everything else, but serial killers typically are highly intelligent people. And he just, I mean, delved into, you know, you no, know, people would say, you know, what is the human's you know, what's your deepest fear as a human? And many people would say the loss of a child. But I think in those final moments, if everybody's honest with themselves, in those very final moments, our biggest fears are own death. And
2: I think that's that's just our nature. That's required of us, you know, to yeah. try to survive. And and you know, there's nothing to yeah. be guilty about that. And I think but you know what though, I think at that very moment at the end so much character is often shown by, by men saving other men's lives in war mm-hmm. or a father saving right. a son or a, a mother saving a daughter. Um, so often comes out, but you're right, that fear of death at the
1: end mm-hmm.
2: has to be the most, um, well, the most horrendous moment there is in all our lives. Right.
0: I mean, that final, that, that last breath, that last breath that we hang on to, you know? And it, it just... I think it... it I think it kind of shocked me when I saw the father putting his daughter in that position, knowing what could happen to her, and regardless of her injuries that she could, you know, sustain, he put her in that position anyways. And as if Holmes knew that he was going to, do, he did, he knew he was going to do this, and how he was able to. Just, I mean, the head games he played with these two and turn the daughter, you no, know, get the daughter's anger towards the father for putting That's her in that exactly. position.
2: You know, to put it in perspective so your listeners know, this is a man that graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School, yep. a full doctor with one of the highest IQs ever recorded. This, mm-hmm. this is the example of evil genius that we think we see in Hollywood or we see in books, you know, from Stephen right. King. This is real, this was actually there. He played chess with everyone around him. When he grew irritated or tired or mad, he murdered them. When he could use them for his purposes, he, he did so. And um, that's um, what I was trying. You know what, what, one of the, that I wanted to write the book for was, we have, um, and Quentin, you might be able to help me with this. We have so many people that wanna give excuses to people that do evil in our world, and I found, and I knew that this was a man that didn't want an excuse. He was just evil. He was evil as soon as he could walk. There were no, there were no beatings. There were no uh, mother and fathers. There, there was the incident in the church, but there was yes, no the me. There was no much. But that and, and did you see, um, Diana? When I was writing that, when I discovered how that happened.
1: Mm -hmm. I knew
2: I had my excuse. I had my excuse that our society wants to give to a killer like this. And then within minutes of it happening to him, he was already figuring out a way to use what the priest had done to him to further his purposes out in the community. Well,
0: it shocked me because when I was reading the the part with, you know, the priest's abuse, you know, you would expect a child to act afraid, (laughs) cowering, scared, scared. But it was almost as if he enjoyed it. I mean, not, not physically, but, you know what I'm saying, enjoyed it in the, in the fact that that one act gave him complete control over this man's life. And that exactly. power for, what was he, six? Yeah. I mean, for a six-year-old to realize that power and to revel in that power and to just, I mean, bathe in 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 the, in the glory of what he considered that power to be, And I was just, it it frightened, I mean, it frightened me as a reader going, my God, I mean, this is a child who's thinking like this, who's thinking these devious
2: evil thoughts. um, I'm enjoying your show very much tonight, guys, because your insight into the portions of the story is more than I see, quite frankly, um, going on shows. And, um, Diana, when you, just the way (laughs) you just explained, the power he knew he was obtaining at six years old, then imagine how easy he had it for himself when he was in London and the London police were trying to catch who Jack the Ripper was, and he didn't let them. It, it would have been it would have been simple. I
0: mean, and I could just see him euphoric for him, absolutely euphoric, and that's, just that's the watching he, them. He to,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: So I'm glad well, you understood
2: um, what I was trying to explain.
1: It, no, it sounds I, 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 like he must have just. Like, like Diana said, it was euphoric for him. The the thought of just being, like, I'm trying not to use the, the same quote Diana used, of figuring out that he had this complete c- control or power over someone at six years old, you know, to just getting away with it. I mean, it's just that, a, a, the sense of, I feel like he would be thinking that he was, tantalizing those who couldn't catch him, you know what I mean? Um, I'm not picking the right words here, but I'm trying to.
2: (laughs) You're you're right there. Let me give you a couple examples that maybe uh, tell you his control over people. He he had six wives. My Mm -hmm. great-great-grandmother was his only legal one, which to Holmes, legal and uh, and illegal didn't make a difference, a bit of difference. Um, He had over 200 mistresses, that if they, um, they, they suited his fancy, he'd let them live. If they irritated him, he'd, he'd use them in his experiments. Um, then when his trial um, was on, the New York Times, the Chicago papers, they all carried it. This was the O.J. Simpson trial at the turn of the century. Oh, I can his imagine. Plat- his draw- the drawing of his face was plastered over every major paper. Right. Was. Um, when they let him off after the jury announced the verdict and the judge the sentence... They led him off. Six women, the New York Times wrote this. I'm not creating this at all. Six women stood up in the audience and were falling these tears. These, these women, I guess some were his wives, some were his mistresses. They all knew the monster he was. They all knew who they were in relation to the other women there and then they just had this pure emotion uh, I hate to use the word love but uh, for this thing even though they knew exactly what he was. So then, then you go to a murder castle, a murder castle uh, uh, scene,
1: where mm-hmm.
2: he has people working at the desk. He has people carrying bags. He has people walking a guest up to their room. He has right. uh, people. He has people there taking the body to the chute, down to the basement, strapping it to the gurney so that he can approach and do his surgery in his apron. These were people, they were good people before he met them, and he turned them into these assistants of a monster. And I don't know if there's ever been anything like that in all of mankind. So: it's,
0: it's I, I mean, short of Hitler, I mean honestly, <laughs> um, we're, we're being, being serious. I, and as far as the women go, you know I guess I, I guess it, it's the bad boy syndrome. Of course, back then you had a different time frame. You had a different mindset. And, you know, just as women today are addicted to toxic relationships or toxic men, I don't think that's really any different, uh,
2: you
0: know, in that time period. I think you still have women who are addicted to toxic men, toxic relationships. And, and you know, there are women today who, you know, you, we read about all the time, women who sit there and, and are pen pals to these, Murderers on death row and everything else, and these women fall in love with these guys. And I think it is that, that romanticized vision of what they consider to be an anti-hero in their own sick minds. And I think that that, that personality in women, it, it, it would have existed back then as it exists today. So I can kind of understand the women in those places where, you know, they find themselves swooning and crying. You know, at this man that they're in love with being put to
2: death, if he was. Yeah, it's um, um, when I write the sequel, I want to write mm-hmm. it from the perspective of one of his wives, watching him going through a life, uh, being with him, and then uh, following his orders as she witnesses him commit these atrocities. And I, I've always been fascinated with that. Portion of the story and I tried to stay away from it as much as I, as I could the first the first story because quite frankly I didn't know how much the world was willing to take me telling um, the horror that this was and I left much much out um, that um, was uh, well could make you sick when you first uh, wow. read or heard of of what he was capable of performing, and and I've decided with some, um, you know, talked with some some professional people that I, the sequel is just going to have all, um, and then the world can decide what it wishes to do with something that was a part was a part of the earth. So um, I won't I won't judge. I won't make the call. Um, I'll yeah, let everyone so um, decide to, on their own.
0: So the book didn't even go into. Obviously, I mean, everything he do was extremely graphic. And um, I'm excited to, to, to hear that there's going to be more that we can delve deeper into this um, because, it, like I said, the book's fascinating. Um, it, it's just, you know, there, there's, just, there's so much. Um, you know, the description that you go into uh, as far as his workers, um, the gentleman that became his friend, that he gave a job to and everything else, and um, I believe he had to kill him at the end, correct? He took care of him. Yeah, that's right and um, but I, and honestly if I have to pick if I have to pick one part of the book, I know I'm skipping ahead here, you know, and I wanted to say it for last, but I just it, it's it's too, it's really weighing heavy on me right now, and I really want to say it now, but I think the part of the book that made me stop. And that really kind of made your story real for me. I mean, it was already real for me. You know, like I said, it was, it was like I was peeking into somebody's window and I really shouldn't have been. I had that feeling reading your book, which is amazing to have, actually. I'm a lawyer. I would admit it, I am. so. But when I read the part of you and your friend going into the basement of this place and your experience there, I mean, to me, I think it really brought it home to how significant genetics are, how real and pure evil is, and how it can affect us once we get this obsession, once this obsession grabs us. Um, You know, you have this experience where, you know, this entity is in you, part of you, and it's trying to make you kill your best friend. And how close did you come? I mean, how how close did you get to teetering on that line before you pulled yourself off? I mean, what was that like for you? What was that, that experience like?
2: You know, I it's absolutely true. Um, that basement scene is as close as I could get to reality as far as I could remember, um, Deanna, because the... Uh, <laughs> the uh it was it was a seizure I had in the basement those the the faces coming out of the concrete wall the voices right. in my ear um telling me to to you know to kill my best friend um asking me to have the custodian leave the room so we'd be down there by ourselves um you know i took I took that whole scene I took that scene to the neurologist and we went through it you know step uh-huh. by step and, and that's when he had said, you know no 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 this was this was a pure Very serious grand mal, but this was an epileptic seizure. Wow. Um, So then then I asked him, I said, well, wait a minute. How did I I know where the furnace was? How did I know where the acid baths were? How did I know, how did I see his assistants pushing gurneys through the basement? And when we checked the drawings that I had never seen before, they were exactly in the right position. How did I know those things? He didn't have answers for those other than he probably thought I had seen them somewhere before and it and right. lost track of them in my mind. But I knew it was different, and I also mm-hmm. know, you know, when Kim and I we go afterwards when we'd go when I when I was fine with the uh, treatment for the madness for the condition and stuff when we'd sit down and have a drink, he he would tell me he could feel the same type of energies down in that basement that day we went mm-hmm. down there so. It wasn't just me, and I can tell you this. The employees at that post office, the federal post office,
1: they Mm -hmm. won't
2: go in that basement. They know it's haunted.
1: Now, haunted is a
2: strange strange word. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the paranormal is. I'll let you both define that for me. But I can tell you this. When people won't go down into a section of a federal building, When it had been barricaded for years, when we got them permission to open it up for us, and went down, and then both of us felt the same, the same type of things. There, there was something down there. I can and I'll also tell you this: when, when the History Channel guys got me to go back down into the basement, it took them six months for them to talk me into going down for them to film. And I don't know if either one of you saw it's been on recently on History Channel called Haunted History: The Murder Castle, and it's a full hour. It's like they did a great job. But yeah, I look, I'm going to see that. I guarantee you I'm going to find it now. <laughs> yeah, Haunted History, the mm-hmm. murder castle, and they do okay. a great job. And they go, we go down into the basement with a full film crew.
1: And nice. And
2: I know Mike Nichols, the producer, spent six months talking me into going back down because I told him I'm never going in there again. I You'll have to imagine. Once, um, I, I was there once, so I don't need to go twice. Because when I first went down those steps... I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the devil. I didn't believe in ghosts, anything. I was a totally logical human being. We live, we die, we eat, we we uh, you know we perish. That hour that I spent down there changed all that of my life. I believe in all of those things now because of that one hour. So finally, after six months, they talked me into going back down in the room. Um, you can see on this show, when you watch the show, you'll see me ready to chicken out on film going back down there. I, I, I was ready to say, forget all your film crew. Forget all the money you spent. I'm not going back down. I went down. Well, with 19 people around me down there, we never felt the same energy we felt that first time. Now, why that is, whether mm-hmm. they're shy or whatever it is, I don't know. I don't know anything about ghosts or the paranormal. But I can That's tell fun. you this when you watch
1: Go ahead.
0: Sometimes if you have a large amount of people in a small space, too, their energy, a bunch of people's energy altogether, can kind of override a paranormal energy. And and quit and I both experienced that in one case. Well, oh, yeah. it'll take forever. Um, and, and and I'm curious, and, and like I said, you know, if I if I go over any boundaries, please let me know. Um, now, from Kim's point of view. Now, I'm sure he's read your book. I'm sure he has. Oh, yeah. How did he respond? I mean, once he knew what was going on, once he knew what you were being told to do or what you were being led to do, how close you came, what was his response? I mean, I can just imagine being the friend in that position, having those shoes switched. I mean, how did he react to that?
2: Well, I'm, I'm one of those lucky men that has a lifetime friend. We, we played high school basketball. We played college basketball. Mm-hmm. We, we worked our same careers together. Um, I'm one of those lucky fellas that has a friend that's more a brother than maybe even my brother. And um, when I told him what had happened, when he read that book, um, besides having to have a screaming fight with his mother who never wanted him to be near me again, um, we we were just fine, as a matter of fact, and uh, um, a couple of times um, uh, he went back down with me that second time, even. So you can imagine how courageous a man <laughs> he is and good a friend.
0: Right. I mean, yeah. I can I can actually say that I would, I would still be there for my friend. I mean, that you know, understanding what's going on, I, I would be able to put myself in that, that those shoes now. As far as um, and, and I'm not sure if anyone's ever you know. Um, talk to you about this or or post this suggestion to you but as far as your seizures go now I've met a lot of mediums in my time and what I caught was and and, you know like I said science isn't able to explain everything away sometimes what appears as a very logical illness or brain disorder or what have you could really you know could those seizures be some kind of mediumship like
2: an no, trigger I, I and triggering I something. You're exactly right. There are people that call epilepsy the God spot. That's what they actually call it, and the trigger and the prophecy disease, because you go back in history and and many um, not not in, in any way comparing myself with any of those people. There are millions of people that have epilepsy, but when you go back in time, the people that we all celebrate as like. Uh, Moses, those type of things that had these visions, mm-hmm. these voices in their heads. They were epileptic, they think. And whether that epilepsy causes a false voice or vision um, or whether do that. it uh, that you say it's a trigger to opening up something other people don't experience, I don't know. I don't know if anyone will ever be able to answer that question. I can only I can only tell you that the experience I had. Um, I, I don't think I could have made up. I don't think I could have created out of thin air. And it certainly happened to me in real life.
0: No. So my, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. No, I was, was going to just bring a point up. On the back I was just I was, was going to ask.
1: Um, would you Would you ever, or do you ever plan on going back to the murder castle? There's.
2: Ghost Hunters want me on a show next year, this year. Uh, Ghost Adventures want me on a show this year. The, uh, um, we have the studios looking at the book, um, preparing to uh, um, make three movies from the book, maybe. Um, I, I probably would, knowing that at that second time when all those people were around, nothing mm-hmm. really happened. As far as going down and spending the night there by myself, I doubt that I would ever
1: do that.
0: I, that would be that would that would be um, probably pushing it for myself as well.
2: <laughs> you're Not a the most you about. Probably the place. Well, Harper's Magazine described it this way, which I just fascinates me. It's never left. Mm-hmm. Me. The place God allowed evil to run amok. I can see that. Yeah, and imagine the horror. I'll give your listeners an example. There was a woman who was strapped to a gurney, uh, a medieval gurney, her arms and feet with rope, and then she was stretched while Holmes impregnated her and kept her on that gurney for months to see if he could create a taller race of human beings. Um, That's just one example. I have ten of them Mm -hmm. worse but that's what was going on in that building in Chicago, in Illinois, in the United States of America. And I just, I, I'm just always fascinated how it's stayed so invisible for 100 years or more. And now it's finally starting to come uh, true. You've got, you've got one of the studios interested in creating a full-scale mock-up set of the Murder Castle. And wow. I'm, hoping, I'm hoping they do that rather than the blue screen thing that they all do now. I hate that.
0: I know. That's
1: just... It's just... Well, on, on the subject of movies, I have to ask you, because I read when I was looking stuff up online, <clears throat> um, that they were potentially going to make um, a movie about the devil in the white city. And I don't know if that ever panned out or not, but they had named Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio to play H.H. H. Holmes.
2: Oh, I hope not.
1: I know. That, that was what I was curious.
2: They were on their way. Warner Brothers had bought the rights with Leonardo playing H.H. H. Holmes. And to tell you the truth, on the Golden Globes the other night, I was looking at his face knowing that. And he had that edge now as he gets older that he might be able to do a fine job of Holmes. But my, uh, my Hollywood uh, agent. Just told me that that movie's probably dead now that uh, he doesn't know why, but it's not moving anymore um, sure. I, I, just wondered I, I how you would feel
1: it to see your great great grandfather being portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio. yeah the
2: um the face um they ha- it has to be a young man um you're talking mm-hmm. about you know Holmes being thirty years old, plus the market they're trying to attract is like they want a younger market on the on the movie so You get into all kinds of aspects, um, you know, with um, the movies that uh, maybe go outside what really happened a little bit. We all get angry about that, especially authors, but, you know, that they're dealing with, think about, I'm, I'm always fascinated, plus I admire the talent that the movie people have to turn a book that I took four years to write into a movie that lasts two hours. I mean it's yeah. not the impossible. It's gotta be impossible. It and is they do so many great movies these days with the work they turn from books.
0: It's one gonna turn it into a into a, a twilight kind of thing.
2: That was horrid. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. I mean I I think Hollywood I think the problem with Hollywood is that they're so worried about attracting a certain people that they forget the story and they forget the the substance of what they're trying to relate. You know. Um God I hope I, I just think there's so many more actors that could portray this man so so much better. I really do. Um now, if they were to make your book into a movie, would would I'm gonna ask the question, would you be portrayed by somebody?
1: I'm that's sorry, that's my
0: curd running in the background. If you hear any noise, that's a curd coffee pot going in the background. I'm actually in a bar.
2: Uh, my own personal bar, so <laughs> I actually could take a cup of coffee right now, but um, the, um, no, that's why they're more fascinated with my book right now than the other mm-hmm. story, because the other story, Eric Larson wrote an incredible book, The Devil in White City is an amazing book, I enjoy it, right. I've probably read it twice, but it's about an old architect and a killer at the turn of the century. Very difficult to make into a current attractive movie to the markets that they have in the, in, in the theaters now. My book is about a current man who learns right. that he's he's connected to this devil and they they they'd much rather turn a movie in, from a, that kind of book. So, um I think they're more excited I think it's an easier story for them to tell. Mm-hmm. Plus it connects with the audience better, they told me.
0: I think so. I mean I, I think, you know, because I know just reading your book, um, yeah, and, and typically, I'll if I have to, and I, and I'll admit sometimes there have been books that I have read for shows, and I just you know you try to get through it in a night or two or whatever. And and with your book, I I just, I found myself taking a lot longer because it was like I would, I kept you know finding things that I'd miss. I I go back and I'd be like, what did I so, did I miss something? And I go reread, and I'm like, oh my god, there's just so many different layers to your book. That I mean, I, I think. If it became a movie, I would absolutely go see it. I mean, absolutely. I and mean, just just to be able to step into the mind of somebody like that. I mean, like yourself, going through this obsession. And I'll tell you right now, honestly, um, you took me right there. You really did. And I think people... And I think you're right what you said in the beginning of the show, is people, they have a hard time placing themselves in that position. You know, that position where in that one moment, your entire life as you kn- knew it, essentially was not real. And it, is that how it felt for you when, you when you found out what your lineage was? Did it feel to you in a way that life before that moment was in a sense not real or maybe not true or not, not, not true, but um, like an illusion did you have that
2: you know, sense? You know, you know what it felt like? It was as if my entire life had, build, had been a build up to that moment when that was my destiny to tell the truth about what this monster was. Because I'll, I'll give you guys both, both what really happened around me. Uh, my family went ballistic when they found out I was going to write this story and that I wasn't going to run away from it as all the mudgets had done for, well, 130 years. Um, I was going, I was, 120 years, I was going to tell the story. I was going to prove to the world that despite where we came from, the family afterwards were all good, law-abiding military and, and politicians that, that had, had done uh, good things for our country and needed to use that to stand up to say, see, even with that behind us, we are good people that you can trust. You don't have to fear right. being around. They didn't accept that at all. Um, the only one that stuck with me, my mom and dad, of course. But uh, right. you know, I still have problems with my sister because of the book. But now most of them agree it was better for me to tell the story and have the world read the you know what I think is real, mm-hmm. um, than than to have let someone at Hollywood tell the story the way they want to sell tickets. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, so I, I've got over that now, but uh, back to your question, uh, there's no doubt in my mind, and this this can be silly or even a little goofy, but there's no doubt in my mind that that moment at that table was destiny for me, being told that's who, where I came from.
0: It, it, it's definitely an amazing destiny. Um, it's a lot of responsibility, I think, and... I think the way you presented it was very brave and courageous, let me just say that. Um, And very honest. And I think, you know, with all, you know, this world today is bombarded with reality. Reality, TV, reality, this, reality, that. Right. But honestly, you know, I I think, you know, knowing how fake all of that is, when we read something like yours, which is reality, which is true, you know, the truth is so horrifying. And I, and I think you really presented it, to it in a way that the reader feels that. You know, the truth that you had a face was a horrifying truth. It was a bloody truth. And for you to present it in a way that you did was extremely courageous. And I'm sure it left you vulnerable in a lot of ways. And I... I I applaud you for that, for being able to do that. Thank you,
2: Thank you very much. I, uh, that's uh, very kind of you, and uh, you've made my day. That was that was uh, awesome. Thank you very much.
0: Well, it's honest. It's true. Um, but uh, I mean, honestly, folks. Again, if you're listening um, live or in the archives, you, you got to pick up. Uh, if you go to the um, web page here. I'm going to read you right now. It's bloodstainedthebook.com, and the book itself is amazing. Uh, this is definitely something you can sink your teeth into and really kind of get into that first-person um, position and really get a feel, you know, for what's going on. Uh, it it puts you into the mind of a serial killer. It really does just that, and it kind of, you know, and I think I think the scariest part of reading that book was the realization that anybody could be this man right now. You know? Right. Anybody. That's right. Anyone. And who would you how would you know? You wouldn't know. I mean the guy that you meet on the train who actually didn't who seems like the most intelligent, most wonderful man you've ever met could be hiding a monster. And you would never know until it was too late.
2: Well, and and this should give you the the, the evidence that the most charming, maybe the best looking, (laughs) the most friendly and helpful is probably the one.
0: Yes, yes, The, the, the one Mr. Perfect, Mr. Right that everybody wants. You know, well, look at Ted Bundy, you know, to his wife. He was intelligent, charming, witty and everything else, but he was a psychopath. He was, you know, he was a killer. You know, and these monsters hide among us. And I think, you know, when you read something like, you know, your book, you really kind of, it kind of makes you take your head up and go, holy crap, you know, this is something that's real. This is something that exists in this world. You know, we we try to, you know, keep these monsters distant from us because we see them on TV. We see them in the movies. We think, and now I think it puts a separation there. I think it puts that veil between us we okay. It's fake. It's in the movie. It's this. It's that. But you know, we get a glimpse at what someone like yourself has been through and what they've realized. And those experiences, I think, we realize that the monsters are real. And the scariest part of the monsters being real is the monsters look just like just like us, just like, to, like uh, anybody else.
1: To connect with what you're saying, it's it's funny you um you know you were talking about you know. Person you meet on a train, and you know, I just came back from being on a train for two days. And uh, I think of the different people I sat with and ate dinner with. And um, and I think of, I'm I one of those people. You can put me in a room, and I will make friends with anyone in the room.
2: And I always thought
1: that to myself. I I thought there's people that I make friends with at social occasions on a train or on a trip, and I don't really know these people. But for some reason, I just trust them because they look normal. They look very attractive. They're intelligent. And there's times I think to myself, God, crazy. I'm like, you're going to shake hands with someone who just got done stabbing someone to death for all you know, you know? And uh, you, you kind of just said that that could be the case. And I, it's funny because I think that to myself a lot. I'm like, God, crazy. Sometimes you're a little too friendly with people, you know? You don't know what these psychopaths are capable of. You know, and I had a, a neighbor who's um, very intelligent. I'm not going to say his name in case he listens. And um, I've seen what he gets like when he gets upset. And I thought to myself... Good God, Quentin, you don't really know these people that well. You've lived on the street for just about a year. You know, for all you know, you're just your neighbor to be a psychopath, and you get them pissed off, and no one ever sees you again.
0: And didn't you say that your furnace is actually big enough to hold a body?
1: My furnace is. It's the, the second one they put into my house, and that was in 1905. And it's it's a gigantic thing, and it's it's probably just a little over six feet long, and if you open the door on the bottom, you'd have to be thin. You couldn't put a person in there, but some thin you could slide in there.
2: Yeah, no, yes. I'm, I'm enjoying oh. Clinton's
0: comments.
1: <laughs> Everyone went all quiet. I was like, crap, did I hang up? I <laughs> never
0: trust my, my phone here, so... <laughs> um,
1: um, but, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. It's just the, the fact that you could meet anyone at any time who could murder you five seconds later. I mean... And it 's not always the weirdos that you like you know you could cross the street because you see someone weird coming, and because you cross that street, it put you right next to the psychopath who's dressed nicely
0: oh god, that's why i've always said weird, strange people never scare me. I love the weirdos, I love the freaks because you know what they 're safe it's that normal guy you got to watch out for
1: <laughs> I mean, I feel like if I had come across h h Holmes, I would have been murdered because i'm a chatty Kathy who will find anything to talk about with anyone. And I probably would have been like, hmm, hi, let's play chess and have a conversation.
2: So you would have gone into the neighborhood and seen this doctor with his beautiful building and the, the mm-hmm. Chicago lit up for the World's Fair. And he would have been standing out on his veranda talking to you coming off the, coming in from your commute from work and uh, asking how your family is. And if the children are going to stop by so he can check on their health and why wouldn't you have thought he's just the perfect neighbor to have?
0: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it, it, it's hard because, you know, now you look at everybody and you're, you're just, you think. You know, the nicest person in the world, you're always thinking, my God, you know. The way I see it is people who act out in public, people who express themselves in weird, unusual ways, that's their outlet. It's the person who you see that never has the outlet. You know, what? everybody everybody has to have an outlet. Let's put it this way. Everybody has an outlet, whether it's public or not. And you've got to kind of wonder when you see people that are subdued, very quiet, intelligent, or, you know, what have you. You know, what is their outlet? You know, they have that, that secret room, you know. Um, but... That really, it does, it makes you think. I love a book that makes you think. You know, and yours definitely does. It really makes you think of all around you. Um, you know, like I said, that, that final part, of that, that, towards, the, towards the end of your book there, you know, how real it became for you at that moment was just terrifying. And to me as a reader, it was terrifying because... You know I, I found myself I, I found myself putting my putting myself in your shoes, you know, and I couldn't imagine how life-changing that is for you.
2: Well, I can you know that's exactly what I was intending to do writing the book, but I can tell you this, um, having written the book, having spent you know the last almost two years um, traveling the country, meeting new people, interested in the story, um, willing to give me a chance, not considering me evil because of who I was uh, descended from. I have many, many more friends now than I ever had in my life. My life's much more fulfilling. I can tell you this. Periodically, and you'll, you'll, you'll be interested in this, this uh, aspect. I have people come up to me at events or conferences and state they'd like to shake my hand and say okay, and then they'll tell me. Um, their family believes that one of their relatives was actually murdered by H.H. H. Holmes and they'd like to come up to forgive me. And I can't tell you how chilling and then warming that meeting and relationship is. And most of those people that have wow. come up to me like that, four or five of them now, um, were, were lifelong friends. And to me, that... Willingness to forgive that they have somebody like me, who's obviously not responsible for their relative's death, but certainly is connected to it. Um right. I, I just, I just think that's the beauty of, of who we are as a species and a race. And and um, those are the people I get to meet now, having written the book. And thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I'm, I'm just glad I did because uh, there were <laughs> there were years there when I wasn't going to write the book. I didn't even want to continue living
1: tell you the truth so it was a good decision so here's a like a role reversal kind of question now everyone kind of thinks okay you, you descend from h.h H. holmes there's always that chance you could be a psycho you know don't don't go in a dark room with him you know he might kill you but being as people who read your book are obviously going to be people who are very interested in H. H. holmes and then probably in some cases they're gonna be a little bit weird, you know what I mean, like they may be sickly fascinated with it, <clears throat> and have you encountered anyone who you kind of thought to yourself, oh crap, I'm not going in a dark corner with this person because I'm pretty sure they're little into this. Um,
2: I had one uh, fellow, uh, I gave a talk in um, uh, Michigan, he came up after and told me that he'd come to the event to hurt me, and that after wow. hearing my after hearing my talk, he decided to buy the book instead but that that was a rather remarkable meeting to tell you the truth. Um, I can imagine obviously, if somebody had their mindset to do that, it would be pretty easy for them to do it. There was no checking at the door or anything, so I. Right. Um, you're 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 opening you're opening the doors up to all types meeting all types of people. But I can only tell you this, to both of you, the people that I've met have been wonderful and uh, incredible mm-hmm. people that I'd love to go see, see again one day. And I have I have uh, I was at a party once in L. A. where a woman had read the book. Um, her and her husband came up um threw a glass of wine in my face and, and threw the book into a fireplace right in front of the whole party and then stormed out of the house she never she never gave an explanation, but um, there's definitely the book that I, I don't know what it is the percentages, but I think um, most of our market is uh, is uh, most of our my readers are um, women about seventy five percent they're they're in that um, thirty to upper uh, age. Um, although when I get a younger one to read the book, they like it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd say, as all novels probably are and, and the documentaries um, combinations, um, there's it's, there's probably about 6 out of 10 that like the book. When when you go, I don't I don't buy reviews. I don't buy 5 stars from people like some of the authors do now.
1: When you go oh, on they- Amazon...
2: When you go on Amazon and you look at all the reviews that the book has, it's got hundreds, but um, we're about four stars and we have a lot of people that just go on and on about reading the book and then you've got some down at the bottom that say it's the worst piece of garbage they ever read in their life. So how that equation works, why someone loves the book and why someone hates it, I don't know if any publishing house has figured that out yet, but but
1: staying first. Do um do you ever worry about, um, I guess, family members? Like you said someone come up to you and say, you know, H. H. Holmes killed, you know, somebody in my family and we're here to forgive you. Have you ever worried if there's gonna be like on the same subject of weirdos, maybe a weirdo who now has some weird vendetta, You killed my ancestor, so I'll kill you? <laughs>
2: Uh, that was that one fellow that's that's what, that's what oh, was,
1: he was it was he end was end. a like a descendant yeah that's
2: what I had figured yeah that's why I had guys figures okay point. yeah but that's the only one i've ever mm. uh, that out that had the courage to come up and to admit what he was going to do right. if, you know after
1: whether that there were any
2: uh, i i just um I try, I try to uh, when I include my audience in the in the talks, I try to let them know that this is about them. This is not about me and h h. Holmes. this is about them stepping into my shoes and, and asking themselves what would they do had they found mm-hmm. out on one day of their life like I did something that was uh, unexpected completely and and I think people enjoy that part of it it's um it's, it's difficult It's difficult to predict How everyone would have reacted differently So
1: I don't know Well I definitely admire that you were capable of Writing a book about it um, Diana I've probably told her A million times there's, I had a, a great uncle Who um, was accused of murder um, The case has never been solved Actually it was in 1913 And but it was pr- A pretty big case for the time I can go to like Websites and type in his name, and I'll get Minnesota newspapers. I'll get the New York Times. I'll get ones from my home state of Pennsylvania. And they kind of was a pretty widespread story. And I've always wanted to write a book about him, but it's so hard to try and step into his life to figure it out that I've really never been able to do it.
2: Well, well I, it's I not think an easy, it's not an easy thing to write. It's it's not. No. And I think it's like uh, Janet uh, said earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I just decided to be honest and just put it down. Now, that, now that doesn't mean that I... Um, one of the reasons why I called the book based on a true story was because I can't prove all the facts in this book. Uh, and I've been attacked about many of them already. But I can tell you this. I can prove exactly what happened to me and my emotional responses to the things I learned. And um, that's, that's what I want the book to be. If someone wants to go read, where H.H. H. Holmes was in 1891 on a Sunday, um, go, go get another book. If someone wants to read, trying to come to grips with the emotion bubbling through your soul, how you're having to reexamine whether you believed in the devil and God, those are the kind of things my book's about, and I tried to buttress those with historical facts and legend and my obsession with finding out the truth about whether Holmes was Jack the Ripper, whether Holmes was actually ever executed or not, um, which we can get into in a minute because I don't believe he ever was, where he actually is buried now in California. If they want to know about those things, which I think one day we'll be able to prove absolutely, bloodstains things is the one. I just, I just Before you go by the book, you know what I try to tell everyone?
1: Mm-hmm. Go to
2: my website go to my website, blow up that picture of the cover with his eyes.
0: Yeah, and look, look at
2: the eyes. Look into his eyes, okay?
0: Mm-hmm. If
2: you can't accept his stare. Don't buy my book. Don't buy my book because the people that can't look into his eyes, they just, the book's too much. If you can yeah. look into his eyes, if you can take the killer stare and you want to know what's behind those stare, that stare, then buy the book. And then it'll... Uh, It'll be and, and you can tell them as you were reading the book every once in a while didn't you close the book and look back into those eyes and, and you, you it's
0: it's almost as if he can it's like wow he can actually see me it, it's almost as if doing that makes you yeah it, it's it's frightening it really is and it's it's frightening a lot because of the way you present it and because of the the reality you show from it, you know, your experience. And you present him in such a real way, in such an attainable way to the reader. And that's what makes the difference. You know, it's true. It's just the truth. There are parts of the book to where I had to just shake myself because I was just, you start finding, you find yourself as a reader getting into this guy 's mind and feeling that that high that he was getting and it when you realize that my god i'm 'm getting into this mindset I'm, I'm I'm reveling in this, and it shakes you and you 're just like wow that's just
2: it's frightening I was on a radio show uh, an a m station in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, big Station, and the host admitted that in order to read the book, she'd had to put duct tape, Quentin, over the eyes on the cover. Oh, wow. This <laughs> 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 is <consistent laughs> you. She, she That's true. That was, that was
1: fun. That was fun. He, and, uh, he definitely before, has a, I a piercing gaze. Mm-hmm.
2: Before, uh, I, I'm, I'm good to go for a while longer with you with you both, but I wanted to uh, take the chance um, I wanted to thank my friends at the History Channel for the uh, show and the courage they had putting on Haunted History: of The Murder Castle. Because the last 15 minutes, they allow me to present most of my evidence, which establishes probable cause. You being an ex, you being a lawyer, you can help me with this. But which establishes probable cause that had holes been alive today. I could have gone down with this evidence and got him arrested. I could have got a warrant for his arrest. There's that much circumstantial and somewhat direct evidence indicating he is Jack the Ripper.
1: Um, wow, that's
2: certainly that's certainly not enough for beyond a reasonable doubt. It, no, you know, and that, when I go on these shows, I have to explain no author can establish beyond a reasonable doubt. That's for mm-hmm. a, a prosecutor with millions and millions of dollars behind him and detectives and policemen and, and the computer banks and the whole thing. So probable cause is probably as far as we're going to get. And the, guys that hit, the people at History Channel were courageous enough to let me stand up there on national TV and for 15 minutes explain this probable evidence about why Holmes is Jack the Ripper And maybe one day we'll be absolutely proven that he's Jack the Ripper. And it took a lot of courage on their part. And I just wanted to uh, mention that tonight on your show. So thanks a lot. No, no.
0: um, I mean, and and that's another thing. That's you know that. I mean, the evidence you put forward, um, for him being Jack the Ripper, is definitely. um, It's. I mean, it's pretty damning on. You know, it's pretty damning evidence to him. It really is. Um you know, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um yeah, you know, it, it took me a little deeper than I had honestly expected. And reading this at night, like I said, was, I, you know, I, I huddle in bed at night and, and cozy for the nice book I and I found myself sitting there and just being you know, having to pull myself away every once in a while because you know, I'm sure it probably makes me sound dark and dimended, but, you know, you find yourself having these feelings and these emotions, sharing it in that with you and with H.H. H. Holmes himself. And I, you can definitely, and please don't take this the wrong way, I'm not saying, I'm not comparing you with him, but you can definitely feel that ancestral connection and the way that you present him
2: um it's it's there i um it I is. controlled it i've controlled it i'm I'm doing really well with it now i'm
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh if I had to do it all over again uh to both of you, I would obviously choose not to have been a direct descendant of h h holmes but um, but now that i am uh, i've decided to live with it and not run away from it and I think it was the right decision to do because quite frankly uh when the book was finished and we put it out to the world uh the energy, the voice, my my epilepsy, the tumor, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, decided to leave me alone, and uh, my life's been fine ever since the book was finished and put out. So, it uh, whether it was just that pressure of writing a book and yeah. it to myself internally, or whether there was something there, I will never know. Um, I have my I have my beliefs, and um, mm-hmm. when I ha- hear someone like you that reads the book and feels. That energy when Holmes is trying to talk, you know, you into the things he thought were what life was all about—the horrible things. Well, then, yeah. then I know I've accomplished what I set out to. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I got it. I got it done. So uh, that that um, that makes me feel good. And I think that there are readers out there that may be puzzled themselves with the direction they want to take their world and. I think reading the book might set them on the right path, not the wrong path, the right path. and, and, yeah, I, and, and I think
0: you, oh, definitely. I mean, I, I think I think you've definitely faced the demon, and I, I think a lot of that was, you know, and and too often we discredit, you know. I think, and I I, I don't want to sound, you know, dark about this, but I think sometimes the voice of evil needs to be released and be out there just as much as the voice of good, I mean, there is that duality in life. And that's part of reality, whether we like it or not as humans. And I think you did that. I think you gave it the release it required. um, And you did it very well. You you did it very well. And like I said before, I commend you for that. I mean, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to face that part of your life. Um, Also to face, you know, the fact that Part of that person's genetics, part of that ancestry. And and it it does survive in you, and the fact that you can take this and use it as a force of good and a force of, you know, turn it into something positive for yourself is amazing. Um, And that says a lot about you as a person. It really does, and it's a good thing. Uh, I commend you on that as well. Well, But we we are down. uh, we, We cut the show to an hour and a half. Um, I didn't want to push you too long tonight. so but we got about 10 minutes left here for
2: the show. Um, and give me, que- give me some questions. you got 10 minutes. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm here for 10 um, minutes to answer
0: your oh, questions. Oh, goodness. Um,
1: well, I would definitely nice. like to say that if you're ever in West Michigan, you are more than welcome uh, to to come and visit where I live. <laughs> uh, where Where is that, like Algon? Um, do you yeah, know yeah. Uh, Do you know where Do you know where Grand Rapids is? Sure, sure. If you went to Grand Rapids on a map and just about drew a straight line to the lake, I'm
2: there, right on the lake. Okay, okay. That's uh, I have a good friend that lives um, right around there. Um, she takes me to a, There's a barbecue place there that's rated in the country like number three in the in the country. It, you know a place called the Grill.
1: Hmm.
2: I think it's an Algon, but it's out in the country. But um, every time I stop by in Michigan, we, we go out there, and it's an incredible place. Anyway, I got off the subject, sorry.
0: I do have a question. What was... Okay, obviously, something like this is going to be difficult for you. As far as personal relationships, as far as um, how people responded to you, bonded to you writing the book, and how people reacted to everything, what was, if you could pick one instance, one person, um, your, what was the hardest experience you had to go through as far as your relationships with people? What was the, what was the most difficult one, the one that hurt you the most as far as when all this came out?
2: know about hurt me the most, I'll tell you the the most emotional um, um, reaction I've had to anything involving the book. The the first time I was asked to give a talk in uh, Chicago Mm -hmm. with uh, Ursula Bilsky's um, uh, conference uh, at the end of the summer, and uh, I wasn't um, prepared. I wasn't I didn't have any experience on what the crowd would do. There was two, two or 300 people in the audience at a big old theater. And I stood up and started talking about my experience, um, threw my papers out and just um, let myself bleed all over the crowd. And, and there wasn't a noise. There wasn't a, a, a clap or a cheer or a boo or anything. It just went silent. And when I finished, they just sat there and uh, when i i walked out and then ursula came up and she was crying these big eyes of tears and and i and i said well was it a flop or and she told me that it uh, had moved her emotionally and then the line um went out the door and we sold out in like 15 minutes all every book we had right. um and to tell you the truth that was the day when i knew that people weren't going to hate me mm-hmm. for writing the book and who I was. Okay. They were going to give me the chance to tell the story and a break. Right. And, and and that was the moment that was the moment when I knew it would had been the right decision to to write the book. And to tell you the truth, before then I didn't know. I, I wasn't oh. prepared. I wasn't ready for any reaction from the crowd from the book. Well
0: I can imagine. <laughs> I mean it's such a personal, such a dark topic. Um, and real quick we had about seven minutes here um, your grandfather, yeah,
1: sure.
0: and I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go too much into, you know, uh, the inheritance and everything, obviously, but, um, had, has the journey, has this, this experience, this, you know, this life journey that you've gone through regarding this man, has this in any way, and, and I know your grandfather has, but. Has it changed how you see or how you feel felt about, I read the book, but I, for our listeners' sake, how has this affected the way you view your grandfather?
2: Yeah, he and I are at rest and at peace now. He, he obviously mm-hmm. passed away a long time ago. Right. But, um, as you, um, the first of the book explains that, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I can give, you, I can give your reader, listeners the, the example I use, which, which just to me is completely powerful. This was a man who was a brilliant man. He was an engineer. He managed the Pacific Gas and Electric plant out in California on the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, Very quiet, very stoic, but on the weekends he'd go fishing um, um, by himself. And he knew that his grandson, me, he knew that I lived to fish. If there was a fish and a line and I could find a stick, I would make a fishing pole and I would go fishing. That's what I liked to do when I was a young boy. He knew I loved to fish, he knew I lived for it. He never invited me fishing. So we grew up, I grew up around him hating the man. Um, We spoke maybe two sentences the entire time and I explained both sentences in the book. (laughs) Until that night, until that night when he pointed his finger at me and said, you know about that name in his house, and then stormed out of the room. So um, there, this definitely, um, I, try, I try to tell everyone, the book is more about my grandfather than H.H. H. Holmes, to tell you the truth. And, right. Uh, and, and then at the end of the book, when we both learn the truth, Mm-hmm. The truth about Holmes and who his grandfather was because that's what I try to explain to people. Um my it's my great great grandfather, but it's my grandfather's right. grandfather. It's that close. I mean this is this is blood. And um then I explain at the end of the book how my grandfather and I went fishing together, obviously when he was passed away, but so, yeah. so um that's uh, I'm glad you asked that question. It's it means a lot to me.
0: Oh no, that was just—it was one part of the book that always kind of lingered through all the pages, um, you know, almost like him reaching out to you from beyond. And it's—it is wonderful that you guys were able to, you know, put that to rest. And it is, and, and it was just—it was evident at the end of the book, you know, that closure. And I think, you know, I mean, I got the feeling that this was your grandfather's way of reaching out to you. You yeah, know, entrusting all this to you, and to me, that spoke volumes.
2: Well, imagine him as a little boy in our country mm-hmm. then. They were writing stories about how this was the devil incarnate. This was, right. the, this was the devil. That's what they were writing in the New York Times and the Chicago yes. Tribunes and the Sun. Um, growing up as a young boy, reading those things, imagine back then and then pretty much having to accept the fact that your life was not could not be emotional in any way because you didn't know whether you were going to explode and do the same things right. that your grandfather had done. So my, it must have been a terrible life. He, he, didn't, he didn't have any friends. He didn't have any connections. And uh, he went fishing by himself to get away mm-hmm. from it all. And, and that's what I tried to explain
1: in, in the book. Well,
0: it was beautifully done. And uh, the book is, is amazing. And... Um, you know, it it's you know, it was it was it was a joy to read, it was a horror to read, um but it was definitely amazing, definitely moving, and um it really, you know, like I said, it it just it really shows you another side of life, a darker side of life that a lot of people don't want to face. And I think the way you did it, like I said before, was very courageous, very truthful and we're just I'm grateful you've done it. I really am. Um and I'm also very honored to have you on. Have had you on the show tonight? Uh, thank you so much. Um, it just it was truly a pleasure, and, and I and I would love to to have you on again, maybe, and go deeper into
2: this. That would be amazing if you'd ever be able to you know do that for us. Um, oh no, I, I would. I have enjoyed your show tonight because we've gone to the mo- the emotional side more than mm-hmm. most shows do. Most shows want to know about what knife he used in London to kill. Right. With his <laughs> And those things, and the size of the furnace, and the acid bath mm-hmm. and things like that. And and I'll discuss those things. They're just not what my book's really all about. So I've enjoyed how you wanted to get to the side that touches a little closer, and uh, I've enjoyed that. So let's let's schedule. I'll, I'll come back on your show. I'd like to do it after the Hollywood guys decide what they're going to do with the book. Yeah, that so would be great. I can I can give your listeners the rundown on, on yeah uh, who's going to star in it. Maybe that'd be fun to talk about, wouldn't it?
0: That would be absolutely, but cool. we are down to the last 90 seconds of the show here. So, um, again, folks, uh, Bloodstains for the Book um, by Jeff Mudgett, an amazing book you can get on Amazon, Nook, go to his website, uh, his website, it is, uh, the website is bloodstainsforbook.com. It's a pleasure to read. I mean, it, it's, it's going to move you, um, it's definitely worth reading, worth purchasing, um, Jeff, you're an amazing man, uh, an amazing writer. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Um, we we were really honored. We really were. So. Well, well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. And uh, the hour and a half has gone like in a flash, Haven't I, th- it, I thought it, we just started.
0: I know. I know. And I, I remember you saying, you know, you didn't want to push too long tonight. And I, I set the show for an hour and a half just in case we went over. Um but uh, it did. It flew by. It was amazing. Uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Absolutely. So um, please keep in touch with us, and um, we'd love to have you back on after
2: all the Hollywood stuff goes on. Absolutely. If you connect up with me on Facebook and uh, stay mm-hmm. in touch with because I try to put all the new things about the book and the evidence and the story coming out on the Facebook page. And any of your oh. listeners, too, I'd love to have them join Facebook.
0: Oh, wonderful. And we're going to put up all your posts on our Facebook page. I think we're going to get cut off from the show here because our time is up. Uh, but, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And we will definitely have you on um, again soon. Good okay.